You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. We've been in a series, we've kind of been just talking about the names of God and one of the things I just want to, again, reemphasize maybe for those of you that are maybe first time uh, here this morning that really, again, names mean a lot to us. We emphasize names in our culture. Uh, cultures throughout the ages have always recognized and kind of emphasized the importance of names. Um, they play an important part in our lives. They play a very important part in our culture. We use names just really, again, for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons we use names oftentimes is we use those to define our relationships with each other. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, you know, brother, sister, you know, boss, coach, teacher, doctor, pastor. So again, oftentimes names define our relationship with other people. Bible days were no different. A name not only defines your relationship, but it also could define a person's nature. It could also be something that kind of uh, spoke to a person's destiny, who they were destined to become. So a person's destiny would oftentimes maybe be reflected in their name. We see that in the Old Testament, a man named Abraham. Before Abraham uh, was called Abraham, he was called Abram. And that name Abram meant father of height. God changed his name from Abram to Abraham, which meant the father of a multitude. And so God did this to establish his covenant, and he was speaking destiny into the life of Abram, and he said, you're not a father of height, you are going to become a father of a multitude. You are going to become a father of many nations, and you're going to bring forth uh, many nations, and kings are going to come from your lineage, and that's why God changed his name, because he said, I'm changing your destiny, I'm changing your purpose. And because of that, I'm going to change your name, which will reflect that destiny, that purpose I have for you. And so again, he changed the name there. God also uses names by which he reveals himself to us, where God is revealing something about his character, his nature, his attribute, his infinite worth. Oftentimes, God will use a name to reveal uh, how he is wanting to interact among us, his plans, his purposes, his destinies for mankind. And again, because God is infinite, God is measureless, there's just no one name that can fully capture all that God um, is. And so God uses different names. And we've been looking at those names over the last couple of weeks. And in each different name God gives us, it's showing us something more about his nature, his character, his attributes. Uh, it, it tells us more and more of how he wants to work and interact um, in our lives. And again, the more we know him by those names, uh, the more we can know about him. And the more we can know about him, again, it just causes us to want to draw nearer to him. It, it opens up that doorway to intimacy between us and our heavenly father. Now, we know one of the names that God uh, used to reveal himself to mankind, and in that he also kind of revealed part of his purpose, his plan, his destiny for mankind, was the name Jesus. And that name Jesus, it means Jehovah or Yahweh is salvation. That's what the name means. 
So when you say the name Jesus, what you're really saying is you're affirming God or Jehovah, Yahweh, is our salvation. And that's why God told Joseph and Mary to name him Jesus, said the Son of God is going to be born, and you're to name him, not just any name, but a specific name. Because out of that name, I'm going to bring forth plans and purposes that are going to be manifested uh, through that name. And so in uh, Matthew 121, as that angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, uh, your fiance, your your wife-to-be, she's going to have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. And again, Yahweh is salvation. And then he says, for he will save his people from their sins. And so we know that that destiny, that purpose that God was speaking uh, into that name Jesus, into the person of Jesus Christ, was fulfilled when Jesus died upon the cross, when his blood was shed for our sins. He saved us from the penalty of sin, which again was eternal separation from God the Father. So again, names are a very powerful indicator of relationships, of destinies, of plans and purposes that God has, and just ways that God really wants to interact with mankind. This morning, I want to look at another name by which God has revealed himself to us, and that is the name Jehovah Nisi. Now, the name Jehovah, again, we talked about that name last week. It is the name Yahweh in the Hebrew. Uh, you'll notice that song that uh, Jason did during the offering. Um, again, it's, it's emphasizing that name Yahweh. Uh, and in the Hebrew, um, in our Bibles, it's translated as the word Lord, all in capital letters. So when you see that in your Bible, capital L-O-R-D, that is the name Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, the name Nisi in the Hebrew, it means my banner. And that's where we get the name Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner. Now the word banner, it's not a flag or a banner like what you and I kind of come to associate with that word. Rather, the name Nisi in the Hebrew, it means literally to glisten. So a banner in biblical days referred to a staff or it was a pole or a rod. And oftentimes what they would do is they would attach or affix an ornament on this. You may remember one time when the snakes uh, came and were biting and, and killing the Israelites and they asked Moses to pray to God that God would take the snakes away. You remember what Moses did? He took a replica of the serpents that were attacking, biting, killing the Israelites. He attached it to a pole. And every time the snake bit someone, God's remedy for that was as they would look to the, the, the serpent, the, the replica of that that was affixed to the pole, they would be healed. That's the idea there. So in, in, in biblical days, they would often use something, they would affix that so that it would kind of reflect the sun's rays, and they would hold that up. It was kind of a rallying point, a focal point. Look at this serpent attached to this pole, you'll be healed. This was the idea, this is the banner, this is the Nisi um, that Scripture is talking uh, about there. It was oftentimes, again, um, just a, a focal point. It, it, it was kind of a, 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 a rallying point for the people. It gave them something to fix or to focus their eyes upon. Now, we've talked about through this whole series, again, we've always kind of gone back to 
Where does the name first appear? What's happening in the context of that situation? Because God isn't just randomly revealing names disconnected from what's happening. Rather, God is using what is currently happening, the current situation, current circumstance, and God is using that to reveal something about himself. And so oftentimes for us, when we kind of begin to understand the name that God is revealing, the context of, what, of how God is using that name to intervene uh, among his people, when we encounter similar circumstances to how that name's being used, we can also apply that same name in similar circumstances. That's the whole point of it. And that's why we're going back and looking at, okay, where does the name first appear? What's the situation? What's the context? Why is God, how is God using this situation to bring about that new revelation about his character and his nature? The place where this first appears is in Exodus 17, 15. And I'm just going to read it to you and then I'm going to go back and explain to you how we got to this point. Uh, Because in and of itself, it really isn't going to make a lot of sense unless you understand the context. So the end result is Moses built an altar and there he named it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. So the question naturally becomes, why did Moses build an altar where he built it? And why does he name it Jehovah Nisi? What happened, what led up to this that motivated Moses to name the altar what he named it? Now, in order to understand that, we're here in, in, in Exodus 17. You've got to, got to go back to the very beginning of the book of Exodus. Uh, probably chapter 3 would be a good place to start. And we kind of talked a little bit about this last week if you were here. We talked about how the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Now, Moses encounters God in the burning bush, and God begins to give him some instructions, some direction, his plans and his purposes for Moses is, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So as Moses is receiving this instruction and direction from God, it says in Exodus chapter 4 verse 1, Moses asked God the following question. Now again, this is God said, you're going to go back to Egypt, you're going to free my people, uh, you're going to tell Pharaoh to let them go. And so Moses says, what if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord, Jehovah Yahweh, never appeared to you, Moses? What if they don't believe me? Then the Lord asked Moses, what is in your hand? And Moses said, a shepherd's staff. Because remember, Moses has been in Midian for the past 40 years. He's been there tending the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law. And so God says, what are you holding there in your hand? And he says, a shepherd's staff. And God says, throw it to the ground. So Moses threw down the staff, and it turned into a snake. That says Moses' reaction was, Moses jumped back. I don't know about you, I would have jumped forward and just been stomping on the head of that snake. I hate snakes. I, Jim Stafford used to have a song out, um, I hate spiders and snakes. You may know that. I'm dating myself, I know. Um, I, spiders don't bother me. I hate snakes. But anyway, Moses jumped back is his reaction. Then the Lord told him, reach out, take the tail of the snake, So he reached out, grabbed it, and it said it turned back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. Then God says, perform this sign. 
Then they will believe the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, has really appeared to you. So Moses' shepherd's staff, that thing that he was using to tend the flock of Jethro, was now becoming this staff, this rod of God. The staff, this rod of God, in a a biblical sense, this now becomes God's banner. It becomes, uh, in uh, in very simple terms, it becomes the proof. It, It is the evidence that God has sent Moses. It's evidence that God is with Moses, that God is the one who is doing all that is being done through Moses. This shepherd's staff now becomes this banner, this staff of God, and one thing it represents is God's favor over Moses and over the nation of Israel. Because if you remember anything about Exodus and Uh, You remember anything about Moses leading the nation of Israel out of slavery. This shepherd's staff, this rod of God, this nisi, this banner of God is used over and over and over um, by Moses, again, to convey, to remind, to impress upon the hearts and the minds of people When you see this, when you see all that God is going to do through this, it is a reminder, it is a symbol. I am with you. My favor rests upon you. I am your deliverer. I am your protector. Um, I am your victor. This is all kind of um, captured in this whole idea of Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is our banner. As a matter of fact, as Moses leaves for Egypt, he's gotten his instructions there at the burning bush. As he's leaving Egypt and he's about to confront Pharaoh with this staff, it says in Exodus 4.20, in his hand, Moses carried the staff of God. So again, he even understands this is no longer a shepherd's staff. This has now been transformed, has now become the staff, the rod of God. And again, what does it represent? It represents God is with me. As Moses is walking, carrying the stick, he looks at this. And and what it symbolizes to him is God is with me. God has sent me. God is going to be the deliverer. God is going to be the defender of his people. So as Moses is carrying this, he's even beginning to make this connection between the rod of God um, as he goes. So Moses appears um, before Pharaoh. Now, Before he does this for the first time, it says that he goes and he meets with the nation of Israel. And he says to the nation of Israel, God has sent me here to uh, deliver you from uh, slavery. Uh, God has sent me here to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And, And so to prove to them that God has sent him that God is with him, that God's favor is on Moses, it's on the nation of Israel. He says, let me prove this to you. And so he does, before the nation of Israel, what he does at the burning bush. He throws the stick down and it becomes a serpent. And then he takes the tail, he picks it back up and it becomes a staff. And this becomes, again, proof for the nation of Israel. God is with Moses 
God is with us. God is going to use Moses as our deliverer. God is going to be our protector uh, through Moses. And, and so they begin to make this association with the rod, the staff of God. God is with us. Every time they see this in Moses' hand, it's just going to reinforce this idea. God is with us. His favor is upon us. He is our deliverer. He is our defender. He is our victor. And and so you're going to see, and I'm just going to go through really, really quickly and show you the number of times this rod was used. And it was used for one purpose, to reinforce the thought, the idea, the concept, the truth. God is with us. So in Exodus 7, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he performs the same exact sign. Throws the sick down, it becomes a snake. Well, Pharaoh's got some magicians. He says, ah, my my magicians can do that. So one of the magicians takes his staff, throws it down, it becomes a snake too. But the interesting thing is, is that Moses' snake devours the snake of the Pharaoh, proving that God is greater, God is stronger. So again, emphasizing God is with Moses. God has sent Moses. He is the redeemer. He is the deliverer. He is the conqueror. Uh, and, and so in, let me just go through these really, really quickly. In um, Exodus seven fourteen through 25, Moses uses the rod of God to turn the Nile into blood. In Exodus 8, verses 1 through 12, the rod of God is used to bring forth the plague of frogs. In 16 through 19, you'll see that Moses uses the rod, the staff of God again, to to bring forth the plague of gnats. In Exodus 9, verses 13 through 33, Moses uses the rod of God to bring forth that plague of hail. In Exodus 10, verses 12 through 15, God uses the staff of God to bring forth, again, the plague of locusts. So every time the rod is used, it's a reinforcement to Moses, it's a reinforcement to the Egyptians, it's a reinforcement to the Israelites that, again, Jehovah Nissi, the banner of God, he is with us, he is for us, he is our deliverer, he is our defender, again, uh, he is our protector, God's favor rests upon us. So every time this is used, it's trying to make that connection um, to the people. Are Are you getting that? Okay, is it why it's public? It's why Moses uses this. In Exodus 14, you now have the freed Israelites, okay, They have left Egypt. Pharaoh uh, rethinks his plan, says, nope, I don't want them to go. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to re-enslave the nation of Israel. So Pharaoh, his army goes in pursuit of the Israelites to bring them back and to re-enslave them in Egypt. And you remember how Moses uses the rod of God to part the Red Sea so that they can cross on dry ground. In Exodus 17, is the nation of Israel comes to Rephidim. There's no water to drink. So what God does is he instructs Moses. He says, you take that rod of God, that staff of God, and you strike a rock. And when you strike the rock, water is going to gush forth. So Moses does what God commanded. And I want you to notice, God makes a very, very, uh, Moses makes a very, very interesting observation um, in verse 7. And he says that Moses named the place Massah, which means test, in the Hebrew, and Meribah, which in the Hebrew means arguing. 
And he does this as a testimony, as a witness to the nation of Israel because they were constantly testing God and arguing and complaining against Moses. So God says, I'm going to name the very place you are at, Massah meaning arguing, Meribah meaning arguing, because that's the testimony of you people. You're always arguing, always complaining against me and against Moses. And he says, because the people of Israel argued with Moses, tested the Lord by saying, and now get this, this is the question they were constantly wrestling with. No matter what they went through as a nation, the question always came back to, is the Lord here with us or not? Is God with us or not? That, that was the question of all questions. And it was asked repeatedly by the nation of Israel. So much so that Moses just said, as a witness and a testimony of that resounding question, Massah, Meribah, I name you in testimony, in witness to your testing of God and you're constantly arguing and fighting against me. Now, I don't have time to go into all of this, but again, if you go back in, in Exodus and, and you just read the history of the nation of Israel from the time they left Egypt, they were always arguing, questioning God and Moses Every time they encountered hunger or thirst or a threat, their complaint was always against Moses for bringing them out of Egypt. Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? We're hungry. We had plenty to eat back in Egypt. Did you just bring us out here so we would die? We want to go back to Egypt. Moses, we're thirsty. We had plenty to drink in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here? Did you bring us out here so we would just like thirst to death? We want to go back to Egypt. They would forget how harsh the Egyptians were. So this ongoing grumbling and complaining and arguing and questioning of God and Moses kind of just culminates here in Exodus 17 where Moses just says, as a testimony to your witness, to your interaction with God, I name this place Massah, testing, Meribah, arguing, because that's all you people do. So you begin to kind of get a sense of the history of this staff, this rod of God, this banner of God, this Nisi of God over his people, starting there at the burning bush and all the way through to the water gushing forth from the rock. And again, what is the rod? What is the staff of God? What is it trying to convey? God is with Moses. God is with us. His favor Rest upon us. No matter how much we complain and argue, God is faithful. God is good. He is our deliverer. He is our protector. That's what this was intended to convey and to reinforce every time Moses used us. Yes, God is with us. And again, it kind of goes back to, it speaks to that response to the people again who ask. And I'm going to come back to that question in just a moment. Because it's a question we ask. Is the Lord with us or not? So in Exodus 17, right after Moses kind of struck that rock, the water gushes forth. It says that the Israelites are there is an imminent attack from the Amalekites. In verse 9 in, in Exodus 17, it says, God commanded Joshua. 
He said, pick out some men and go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. He says, tomorrow I'm going to go to the top of the hill. And he says, I am just going to hold up the staff of God in my hand. Now, why is Moses going to do that? Let me just set this up for you. Who were the Amalekites? They were descendants of Amalek. And Amalek is a grandson of Esau, whose brother was Jacob. And if you remember the story of Esau and Jacob in Genesis 25, you'll remember that Esau forfeits, he kind of gives up his right his blessing, his inheritance as the firstborn son. He just relinquishes that to Joshua for a bowl of stew and some bread. So Esau kind of just relinquishes, he gives up his right um, that really represented God's favor. It, It represented God's inheritance to Esau. It kind of represented that he was willing to just relinquish that over a passing need of hunger. So Amalek is the grandson of Esau. And this legacy passes from Esau um, into all of the generations of the Amalekites. And so their legacy, the Amalekites, their legacy is... We are a people who have forfeited God's favor for lesser passing needs that was started by Esau, and we are just going to carry on that tradition of Esau, and we're just going to relinquish our rights to God's favor. We are just going to turn our back, as Esau did, on God's favor in order to kind of just do what we want to do the way we want to do it. Now, again, the Amalekites and the Israelites, they're related. They're, they're, they're sort of like cousins because both of these tribes, okay, they're descended from Isaac, the son of promise, the son of covenant between Abraham and Sarah, And so the Amalekites, the Israelites, because of of Isaac, they should be allies. They should be friends. But rather, the Amalekites became known as one of the first and most fierce enemies of Israel. As a matter of fact, the Amalekites were so cruel and so ruthless in warfare That Moses says this in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. He says, never forget what the Amalekites did to you as you were coming from Egypt. He's speaking back to that time here in Exodus 17. Don't ever forget what they did to you as you came from Egypt. They attacked you when you were exhausted and weary. And they struck down those who were straggling behind. They had no fear of God. So as the nation of Israel, as they're making their way from Egypt, again, you're looking at probably over a million people, a million Israelites as they leave Egypt, as they're making their way, what often would happen is kind of the older, maybe slower 
uh, individuals would kind of lag behind. They would kind of be bringing up the rear guard. They would then be able to kind of walk at their own pace. Oftentimes you would have in the front, you would have the younger, the stronger, the more able. They were able to kind of clear out the path for others to walk. If there were predators, they could kind of take that out. And it just made it easier for those who were following behind them to make their way. The Amalekites knew this. They understood this and they exploited that in that they would purposely attack the rear and they would take out the slower, the weaker, the less able people. They're kind of like the ISIS of our day. Now, I didn't say this in first service, but there's just a great analogy in this. Do you understand now why, why God says, I'm your rear guard? Yeah, because that is a place of great weakness and vulnerability. And the Amalekites can, can be a representation of sin in our lives. Oftentimes, sin attacks us at our weakest, most vulnerable points. And the enemy knows that. God knows that. And that's why God says, I am your rear guard. Amen? So they were kind of like the ISIS of their day. Their warfare tactics were despicable. They were cruel. They were ruthless. And so Moses is reminding the nation of Israel, I don't want you to forget how awful, how treacherous these Amalekites were. And Moses noted that they had no fear of God. So you have the Amalekites, strong, skilled, cruel warriors. They are enemies of God who do not fear him. They have no favor with God. They're going to attack the nation of Israel. Again, who, by the way, they just, they're, they're newly freed slaves. They're not skilled warriors. They don't know how to fight. All they know how to do is to build. And so you have this very skilled army coming against this very unskilled nation of people who were former slaves. They're kind of just a ragtag bunch. And they're about to be attacked by a very strong, fierce, skilled, cruel, fighting machine. But don't forget, the nation of Israel has something going for it. Ah, God is their banner. They fear God. They know the power of God. They've seen the power of God. And they know his favor rests upon him. He's delivered us in the past. He'll deliver us again. And so they look to this. And this is where, again, this was the focal point. This is the rallying point. So what do you think is going through the mind Again, knowing their history as as the nation of Israel, what do you think is going through their mind as they become aware of this imminent attack by this very strong, fierce, cruel army? We know pretty much from the past what they're probably thinking. Is God with us? Is God going to deliver us here? Is God going to be our defender here? Will God protect us now? We know he has in the past, but that's the past we're concerned with now. Is God with us? Massah, Meribah, over and over and over. They just never seemed to learn. 
When they had no food, they complained to Moses, want to go back to Egypt. Had no water, we want to go back to Egypt. The pattern of complaining against Moses and God continued over and over and over. And that's why God said, man, just as a testimony to the way you argue and complain, Massah Meribah. So I'm sure Moses, he's kind of anticipating the reaction of the nation of Israel regarding this imminent attack of the Amalekites. And the nation of Israel, I mean, they probably are dismissing, they're discounting. Some of them may have even forgotten the fact they have Moses, they have this staff of God, that the witness of God rests upon this, the favor of God rests upon this. So we've seen Moses do many miraculous things with that rod. But again, we question, is God with us here and now against our battle with the Amalekites? And so Moses, in anticipation of that, I think he just says, you know what, Joshua, you go get the army ready. I'm going to go to the top of that hill. And I'm just going to hold up the staff of God in my hand. Beginning in verse 11 there in Exodus 17, and it said, as long as Moses held up the staff of God in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. The, the battle was going their way. But whenever he dropped his hands, the battle went to the Amalekites. They gained the upper hand. They had the advantage. And it said that holding up that staff, Moses' arms soon became very, very tired. He could no longer hold it up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone uh, for him to sit on. And then they stood each uh, on the side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands were steady until sunset. It says, as a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. So again, it just says, as, as long as Moses lifted that up, as long as he just held that high, and the Israelites... The warriors, the soldiers of Israel were able to see that no matter what may have been going on around them, no matter what their thought was, as they look to the hill, again, as they, as they see that rod of God lifted up, they're reminded, God is with us. God is for us. He is our defender. He is our protector. He is our deliverer. No matter what happened, every time they looked up there and saw the staff, it was a reminder to them. He is with us. Verse 14, after the victory, again, I'm leading up to why Moses did what he did in naming it. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So as a result of that, now we get to Moses build an altar there and he named it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. He said, they have raised their fists against the Lord's throne, so now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. Again, that's why I think Amalek represents sin in our lives, because sin is something that every generation deals with. And he is Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is our banner. He's with us. His favor rests upon us. And so, in recognition of that, the Bible says that Moses built an altar and every time you build an altar, it, it is to recognize, it is to commemorate God's working among them. And so he, he builds an altar there. And it says that he names it Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Now, why does he do that? So every time the nation of Israel would walk by that altar, their thought would be, ah, yes, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is our banner. God is with us. God's favor rests upon it. I forgot, but seeing that altar there, 
Remembering the name Jehovah Nisi, it reminds me, he is our defender, he is our protector, he is our victor. Every time the question would surface, is God with us? Does God care? Does God know what we're going through? The altar would be a reminder and would answer the question, yes, he is with you. He does care. He knows. His plans and his purposes are to bless you. He is your defender. He is your provider. We're really not that much different, are we? Troubles come. Some of you maybe have had challenges this week that have surfaced in your life. Struggles threaten us. The enemy rears his ugly head against us. And don't we oftentimes find ourselves asking the same question? Is God with me? Where did God go? Does God care? Does God even know what I'm going through? Does God have a plan for this? Has God deserted me? Have I done something wrong to offend God? I mean, aren't those the questions that often surface in our own lives? When we face difficulties and troubles and challenges, we lose our job, our spouse leaves us, maybe a loved one dies. We can't maybe overcome a particular addiction. It just keeps rearing its ugly head over and over. Our children maybe have rebelled, maybe cancer, other sickness have overwhelmed our bodies. Fear comes, depression comes, worry, anxiety comes. And we kind of just find ourselves sometimes asking the same question that they ask there in the Old Testament there in Exodus. Is God with us or not? Isaiah 11 makes a very interesting prophetic statement regarding the coming Messiah. Verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And again, that's the lineage of Jesse, the descendants of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner over his people. The nations will rally to him. Remember, this was a rallying point. It was a focal point. It's what they looked to because of what it represented, what it connected them to. And his place of rest will be what? Glorious. Now, we know the person that Isaiah is referring to there as a Messiah is Jesus. And I want you to notice that Isaiah uses that word rod and banner in reference to the coming Messiah. Now let me just play Captain Obvious here. I'm sure many of you probably already have made this connection 20 minutes ago. But what does the rod represent in Exodus? Again, it represented God has sent me. God is with me. God is with you. His favor rests upon me and upon you as a nation. That's what it represented. Matthew 123, it says, the Virgin Mary will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Jesus, the rod 
Out of the stem, the lineage, the generation of Jesse, the banner over God's people will be called Emmanuel. It will testify, it will remind us, God with us. Is God with us or not? His name is Emmanuel, and that means God is with us. It answers the question. It's why they named him Jesus. It's why he came. It's why God took on flesh and became a human being and dwelt among us. So God is with us. Listen to the angel's testimony concerning the birth of Jesus in Luke 2.13. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel. We're going to see that heavenly host someday. We're going to hear that testimony someday. Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Is God with me? Emmanuel, God with us. God is with you. Does does God's favor rest upon me? The scripture says it does. Glory to God in the highest. Because when Jesus came, there came peace on earth. And his favor came to rest on you and me. See what, the God, what that rod of God represented to the nation of Israel? Jesus Christ is to you and I today and to all who believe upon him. Jesus Christ is Yahweh Nisi. He is God's declaration to us. It is God's banner over us. It is God's witness, his testimony to us that Jesus is with us, Emmanuel. His favor rests upon me. Every time that question arises in your heart, is God with me? The answer to that is look to Jesus because the answer is yes. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Does God's favor rest upon me? The answer to that is yes. You have the testimony of the angels who said when Jesus came, it was peace on earth and on men upon whom his favor rests. That's why Jesus was able to say in Matthew 28, 20, I'm with you always. Never have to wonder, never have to question. Doesn't matter how difficult life gets. Doesn't matter what happens in the ages of what you're living in. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus is our eternal Jehovah Nisi. His banner, his declaration, his witness, his testimony to you is, I am with you. My favor rests upon you. I'm going to make one other observation and then we're going to close. The other interesting note concerning the pole, the rod, the staff that Moses lifted up, I alluded to that earlier with the serpent. And Jesus picks up on that theme. And he says in 314, he says, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake, on that pole. Remember, he attached that snake and he lifted it up in the wilderness. Every time anybody looked at that, they were healed of that snake bite. He said, just as Moses did that with that serpent on the pole in the wilderness, so as the Son of Man is lifted up, that everyone who believes, everyone who looks to him will have eternal life. In John 8, 28, Jesus also said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, and, he, and he, now he's getting very, very specific, then you will understand that I am he. 
Also in John 12, 32, Jesus said, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. And Jesus said this to indicate how he was going to die. All three of these verses from John indicate Jesus would be lifted up by means of the cross on which he was crucified. And just as when the Israelites again looked at that rod, that staff of God in Moses' hand, and they knew They made that connection of that rod of God's testimony and witness to protect and to deliver them. So when we look to Jesus, when we look to the cross, again, it's a witness that through the cross, through his shed blood, he has redeemed us. He has cleansed us from sin. He has rescued us from the penalty of death. I also love that the cross speaks to. Every time you look at that cross, do you know what that cross says to you? You are loved. God loves you. The Bible says there, it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Enemies of God, enemies of the cross. It says, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. If you're here this morning and you wonder, does God love me? You look at that cross because that cross is a demonstration. It is a witness. It is a testimony. It is a reminder. Yes, he loves me. Not because you're perfect, but because even in your imperfection, even in your sin, he died for you as a demonstration, as proof that at your worst, God loves you. So you may be here this morning, you may be questioning and wondering, does God love me? The cross demonstrates, it proves, it shouts, it screams, it declares, God loves you. So what do you do with this? Well, do what Hebrews chapter 12 verses 2 through 3 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. This was the focal point. In the nation of Israel, this was the rallying point. This is what they looked to. This is what they focused on when they needed that reminder. Is God with us? Does his favor rest upon me? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus this morning. That is a witness. That is a testimony that that God is with us, Emmanuel, that God's favor rests upon us. Fix, focus your eyes on on Jesus. And that, that word fixed in there, it, it's, it's don't even look to the left or the right. Just fix, be fixated, be focused intently on Jesus. The author, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, there's that word again, our theme of the day, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God, consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's the purpose for fixing our eyes on Jesus, considering him. Because man, I'll tell you what, when you get fixed, when you get focused, You're not looking at anything else but Jesus. It's going to strengthen you. It's going to give you hope and encouragement for whatever you're going through here this morning. And again, he's Jehovah Nissi. It is the declaration. God is for you this morning. He loves you. 
his favor rest upon you. He is your deliverer. He is your provider. He is your protector. You don't need to look at anybody else. You don't need to look to anyone else. Fix your eyes on him. Amen? Let's stand this morning. Father, we, I just pray for people here this morning. I especially pray for those, God, whose focus is fixed on anything other than Jesus. For whatever reason this morning, whatever may be happening in our lives, in our hearts this morning, Father, I pray that you would just again lift up your banner over us, lift up your testimony of Jesus over us again this morning. That God, no matter what we're going through, you are with us. You are Emmanuel. That your favor rests upon us. That you love us. That you're our defender, our protector, our provider. That God, you have given us the victory this morning. And God, we don't need to settle for anything less but that complete victory that you have secured for us. Through Jesus, who came, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, rose from the grave. He overcame death to give us life. And so, Father, I just pray, Lord, that we, this morning, regardless of what we're going through, the circumstances, the situations in our lives this morning, we choose to fix our eyes on him, to consider him. To make him our focal point. To make him our rallying point. That we would receive the word and the testimony, the banner of him over us. And we just ask you, Father. We talked about just breaking those chains. Break every chain, Father. I pray that this message would again just inspire us. Give us reason to hope. That he is the one who can deliver us. He is the one who can break those chains. He is the one who can forgive us. He is the one who can redeem us. He is the one who can heal us. So Father, I just pray, Lord, that this morning, whatever need we have, whatever struggle we may be encountering, whatever addiction, whatever may be coming, Whatever sin may be trying to overwhelm us, Father, help us just to look to you, that you are our rear guard. You are our defender. You are our overcomer. And it's through you that we overcome and have the victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just invite you this morning, if you're here for prayer this morning and just want someone just to pray over you, it doesn't have to be anything related to the message this morning kind of encouraged there were uh, just feeling like there are people here this morning who have that prophetic gift we talk about that a lot here and there may be some of you this morning here that maybe have a prophetic word for somebody um, I know there were several people first service that received a prophetic word so maybe as you're coming up to be prayed for this morning the people praying for you may have a prophetic word and again a prophetic word it's just encouragement it's just to comfort you it's maybe to give you instruction uh, just maybe for God to speak to you about a particular situation that may be going in, on in your life this morning. So as you come forward this morning, maybe some of you are just here, you're, you're needing to hear uh, the voice of God this morning. Just come and, and uh, we'd love to just be able to just 
uh, pray over you and just ask God for a prophetic word for you this morning. So just invite you to come. Uh, communion, again, available here. Uh, it's for all believers, just taking bread, dipping it into juice. We partake by intention. And uh, just to be engaged in worship uh, one more time before we go out this morning. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.